I'm so happy to be here tonight and you know what, like I'm, I'm here now at ICF for 11 years and I realized I never got to preach an open topic message here in Zurich in 11 years. Always part of a series, which is great, um, but I was really looking forward to today and so because it's open topic, I waited on the Lord. No, I really, I, I really, uh, God really dropped something in my heart that I want to speak about Today I chew on it over the last couple of weeks and now I'm ready to deliver it to you. Um, and I wanna, I wanna, tonight I wanna, I wanna speak on the topic of comparison. Because I think that in our today's digital world where we are more and more globally comparing us to other people on different channels, I think that's, then, that, that this topic is a, a very important topic. And so the title of my message today, if you want to write that down, uh, my title is JB or JC, who is better? <laughs> JB or JC, who is better? And I want to take an episode from the life um, from John the Baptist, JB. Uh, and look at some principles that I believe will help us confront this, I want to say it like this, it's a plague from hell comparison. I think it's something that is destroying us from the inside out and is really killing the potential that God has put into our life. And that's why I think it's very important that we look at certain keys that the Bible gives us, how we can confront these attacks of the devil when he wants to kill something when we're comparing us with others. But before I go into this episode, I, I need to give some context. I'm, I'm a guy who loves to give some um, biblical context to better understand. And so I first want to take you to the last verse of the Old Testament. The last two verses of the Old Testament, it's Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. With these two verses, the Old Testament is ending. And it says there, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So the Old Testament is ending like this and is promising a prophet called Elijah. But Elijah had already lived. He was one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. I mean, he prayed and, and fire fell from heaven and he killed the, the prophets from Baal and he did all these great things in a very dark period of the people of God. So you can read this story in First and Second Kings. Uh, Elijah was, was a great prophet and at the end of the Old Testament, God is saying, I will send the prophet Elijah. And I don't know about your Bible, but in my Bible, after this verse, there's an empty page. There's one empty page. And after this page, the New Testament is starting with the Gospel of Matthew. Now, this one empty page stands for 400 years of silence. 400 years where God decided not to talk anymore. I mean, God was not inactive. God is always doing things. If God wouldn't do anything, the whole world would fall apart. So God, of course, was active, but he decided not to talk. Did you know 
that the pause is one of the most powerful rhetoric instruments in a speech. So when you're preaching or you're having a speech, before you say something that is very important and you want everyone's attention, you make a pause. And now imagine God was about to speak his most powerful word with his son, who is the word of God in the flesh, coming to this world. So I think that these 400 years were here to catch the attention of the people. They knew something's coming, something important's coming because God is pausing to make us think. And John said in John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Dwelling can also be translated with camping. It makes this connection to the tabernacle in the Old Testament where God decided to build his presence in the middle of his people in the tent of the tabernacle and the holies of holies. And now it's not a tent, it's not a temple, it's his son. The word of God in the flesh that is coming after these 400 years. But this long pause, this speaking pause of God was broken first by a strange guy. His name was JB from EK. John the Baptist from a little village called Eim Karem at, at the western bank of Jerusalem. And this guy, he was a hipster before his time. I mean, he had a coat made of camel hair. He was dipping his grasshoppers in honey and eating them. You know, if today you go to Cope, you can buy insects. You thought it's modern? It's not. 2,000 years ago, JB from EK was eating grasshoppers in the desert. So he was a hipster. And his message was a message of repentance and preparation. But his trademark was baptism. That's why his name is John the Baptist. Why? Because he was the first guy who was baptizing people, diving them, the whole people, into the open water. You know, the priests did lots of washing. Washing were known in the Old Testament. You did the washings to get clean from your sin. But John the Baptist, and that's why he's called like this, was the first guy who invented the new baptism where people who uh, said they had sin in their lives could openly declare it and then they, he baptized them in water. So his ministry, uh, we can call it, it was a new kind of baptism. ICF's new kind of church was a new kind of baptism, you know, like so something very new. And it's important, people were streaming into the desert to meet him. So his ministry was, was very successful. After 400 years of silence, there was a big revival happening in Jerusalem, we, uh, in Israel, and we read that in Matthew 3, verses 5 and 6, people from Jerusalem and from all Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John, and they went out into the desert. 
I mean, who wants to go into the desert just like this? I mean, if you go into the desert, there must really something be happening down there, you know? So desert is not the place to be. But people went into the desert. It says in other translation, they flocked or they streamed into the desert to hear John preach. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. So we can see John the Baptist was the shooting star. He was the guy who brought revival into the land. People were coming. His word was powerful. He had this new kind of Baptist. Everything was happening. And even Jesus confirmed who he was. We read that in Matthew 11:14. Jesus says, if you are willing to accept it, John is the Elijah who was supposed to come. So after these 400 years, this hipster out in the desert is drawing the people and there's something happening. But now there's another guy coming to the plate. His name was JC from BH, Jesus Christ from Bethlehem. <laughs> and you know what? He was also baptizing people the same manner like John the Baptist. He copied his baptism. I mean, John had baptized Jesus and now Jesus was baptizing the people. And so you can imagine that conflict was just waiting to happen. And that's what happened. We read that in John 3 verses 25 and 26. A debate broke out between John's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. In other translations it says a fight. They were fighting over this form of cleansing, this new baptism. And they were, they were fighting over the question, which one of these two is most powerful? Which one is now the right one? Is it JB or is it JC? And you know, the disciples of John the Baptist, they were very close to him. The, John the Baptist was a rabbi. That, that means he had his, his people around him and they were all together baptizing people. They were following him in his ministry. And then it says here, so John's disciple came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people. Have you heard that? And then, and everybody, everybody, you know that? Probably it was not everybody, but for them it felt like everybody. You know this new church that opened down the road? Everybody is now going there. Everybody. Everybody is going to him instead of coming to us. You can smell it. They were disappointed. Because you know there was something happening in the desert. And now suddenly people were drawn to this JC from BH. Who was doing the same thing. And they thought about it. Man, what's happening here? And I think that the answer that John the Baptist gave to his disciple gives us some keys and I, I draw out four keys that will help us when the devil tries to put us into this spiral of jealousy, 
of comparison and wants to keep us uh, in, in there. And, and I think that these keys out of the answer of John the Baptist helps us to fight this when, when, the, when, when the devil is trying to put us there. So I will take the answer uh, apart and I'll make uh, four points. So the first point is John the Baptist knows where he comes from. His answer is no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. So that was his first remark. He said to his people, you know what? Nothing that you are doing, that you are, you, can, you can't do it without God. God is the one who gives gifts. He's the one who gives opportunities. He's the one who gives everything that you have comes from God. And so what Jesus is doing is coming from God and what I was doing is coming from God. So he knew where he was coming from. And I think in today's world where the whole world spins around ourselves, I think that this is a very important key that we need to remember. We always need to remember where we are coming from. You know, in today's world, everything is revolving around us. You go into your car, the car knows already your favorite song and plays it. You look in the internet, there's everything that matches what you prefer jumps into your eyes. In your playlist are only the songs that you like because you don't want to bother about things that you don't like because I'm the center of the universe. I think in a time like this, it's very important that we understand where we're coming from. Everything that we have comes from God. And if you understand this, then thankfulness must be the answer and not pride. Because if you know where you're coming from, you know that you didn't deserve it, but you received it. And if you receive it, you are thankful for the giver of the gift. And I think this is true humility, by the way. I think that we Christians have sometimes a wrong uh, view of humility. You know, I think sometimes Christian humility is like walking shoulders bended down, a little bit like this, like, oh, no, it's just me. It's just me. No, I'm not too loud. I'm not very gifted. You know, I think true humility is not I am small, but God is big. It's not I can do nothing, but God can do everything. And this means that I always know where I'm coming from. I know where everything that I have is coming from. That's why Moses could write the following about himself. You know, it's really a hilarious verse um, in Numbers 12. Uh, if you picture that, Moses himself brought the five books of Moses and Numbers is the fourth. And now I imagine Moses sitting on a rock, he's about to write the Old Testament and he writes the following in Numbers 12:3. Now Moses was very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Imagine Moses sitting there like, man, I'm humble. I mean, all these people here, I can't... No, I, I can't see anyone who is more humble than me. No, really? I tried. I really tried. 
I mean, really, I really do. But I really believe that I'm very humble and everyone from now on and all the generation needs to know that I'm humble. I mean, if you take that out of context, you think, I mean, Moses had just a little second of craziness here. But I think it's the other way around. I think Moses knew where he was coming from because he was the one who said to God, me, I am leading these people. No way, I can't even speak. He knew that he, he, he didn't have it all together. So I think that Moses, every time that he had trouble with the people, he went back to God and said, you know what? You told me to do this. That's not my thing. He knew where he was, he was coming from. And I think this is so important. This produces thankfulness. I think this is the key for generosity, by the way. Because we are blessed to be a blessing. So there's first the blessing. And so we can be a blessing to others. And so it's very important that we know where we are coming from. And this helps us not come into this spiral of comparison. So the first thing that he said in his answer was this. He knew where he was coming from. The second thing is he knew who he was. If we continue in this verse, it says there, you yourself know how plainly I told you I am not the Messiah. So John the Baptist had to say to his disciple, you know what? I am not the Messiah. So he knew who he was. He knew that he was not supposed to do the things that the Messiah was supposed to do. He was John the Baptist. And I think this question of identity is a big topic in today's world. As I said at the beginning with social media and globalization and everything, the world is, is so small and we can compare each other on every level. And I think this question Who am I? Is one of the most important questions that we need to answer in life. Am I what I achieve? Am I what others think of me? I read that in, uh, on Instagram, every week there's 50 million hashtag selfie posts. So 50 million times people post a selfie and hashtag it. And probably there's many more people doing selfies without hashtag selfie. So we see that the selfie is something very popular in today's society. And it's a very new phenomenon. If you talk, if you talk with my parents, they say, what the heck with these selfies? I read a, an article from a journalist, uh, an Italian journalist. He wrote a, a book on that. And he says the following there, the selfie is a strong need to affirm one's existence, to leave a trace of one's existence in the world. And he makes then this philosophic statement almost where he says, today's generation lives by that, I selfie, so I am. This is what gives me a place in this world. There are also studies analyzing the problem of kill fees. Did you know that? That people die doing selfies. Between 2011 and 2017, 259 people died trying to take a selfie. 
And there's a much bigger dark figure, probably, because we don't know all the, the things, but almost 260 people died because they wanted to do this amazing selfie. And most of them are drowning, or they're, 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 uh, they're, the train is, is, uh, is running over them, or they're, they're falling from, from somewhere, because they, they want to they, they show the world a bit more than what they actually are. That's the thing about the selfie. And I was, and it's interesting, when you're talking about social media and posting with people, the usual answer is, oh, no, 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 yeah, I know there are crazy people on social media, but I'm not like this. I mean, I only use social media just to connect a little bit with the people I know because I know lots of people in the world and so when I have Facebook so I can connect with the people. So I have no problems with posting, that's just, you know, I just, no, 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 it's not me. So I was thinking this week, why am I posting from the fitness center? <laughs> why am I always posting from my soccer career? I mean, why would people know that I'm such an amazing soccer player? Or, yeah, that's why when I'm, when I'm telling people what I'm doing during the week, I mean, what crowds I'm attracting with my preaching, yeah, it made me think. Why is it that usually on social media we present ourselves a little bit bigger than we really are? I think it's the question of identity. Who am I? Can people see me? Am I important enough for this world? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Amen. You know, I believe that this question, who am I, can only be answered in Jesus. And we can try and we can fight and we can compare and we can pose and we can Photoshop and we can put a filter on our selfie to get more likes. But I can tell you one thing. There's only one like that you need to get, and you get it any time, it's God's like on your life. On every single situation. Without selfie filter, without Photoshop bomb, without anything that you need to fake it, to make it, before you even existed, God said, like, 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 like. So, I think it's important that we build our life on what God says who we are. You're a daughter. You're a son of God. You're a friend of Jesus. You're forgiven. The Holy Spirit lives in you. You're the head. You're not the tail. You're wonderfully, wonderfully made. I think it's so important. And John the Baptist shows that in his answer. He knew who he was. And that means that he also knew who he didn't, who he was, he didn't, he wasn't, wasn't, he didn't want, was, he wasn't. So it's very important. He knew where he was coming from. He knew who he was. And the third thing, he knew what his assignment was. We continue in the verse. He says there, I am only here. I am only here to prepare the way for him. So he knew his assignment. 
He knew what his job was on this planet Earth. And it was not the same job than the job that JC had. And so that's why when we compare, don't compare with others because your assignment is a different assignment. You know, last Sunday we had Juan Mogi from Jakarta with us. And usually when we have guest speakers in the uh, German-speaking celebration, I used to translate them in German. So that's why you didn't see that last Sunday. So last Sunday, I translated him three times. And it's interesting, you know, when I'm translating, I'm translating lots of guest speakers. And when you're translating, of course, you need to concentrate on the word, but then you listen to the message too. And it makes something with you sometimes, what the preacher is saying, because I heard it three times. And so last Sunday, there was one passage that I translated very friendly. But tonight, I want to give you insight into my thought that I had during the time that I translated Juan Mogi in this sequence. Okay, are you ready for this video? I'll just, yes, get the video. And God said, at another service. Und Gott hat gesagt, mache einen zusätzlichen Gottesdienst. At another service. Einen zusätzlichen Gottesdienst. At another service. service. Und noch einen. Yes, service. service. Ja, Gott. No, we have five services. Yes, five, five services? All full. All full. At the overflow. Sie haben sogar einen oh, overflow. And we are going to have six services. Und wir werden jetzt einen nice. sechsten Gottesdienst anhängen. And this year we get 2,500 additional new people coming to you the church. You must be kidding me. 2,500 in a year. We don't even have as many in our church. Und Gott hat eine andere Frage gestellt. And if I keep on sending the people, und wenn ich diese Menschen immer weiter schicke, I said, Lord, I still have Friday and Saturday. Habe ich gesagt, Gott, ich habe immer noch Freitag und Samstag. Nine times. Neunmal. Nine services. It cannot accommodate. Und wenn es, wenn ich es nicht einrichten kann, I said, I don't know, Lord. Dann weiß ich das nicht. Start Gilgal Center 2. Man, shut up! Start Gilgal to 5,000 seats! Come on, somebody! Mowgli, shut up! You know, sometimes I would love to translate it just in a different way. You know, just say, yeah, we tried a, th a third service, didn't work. No one came, no one came. And really, I mean, I worked Friday, Saturday. I mean, I got burnout after two months. Maybe really crazy. And yeah, yeah, yeah. In faith, we build this building with 5,000 seats. It's empty every Sunday. No one comes. Man. You know, this guy was born the same year than I was, 1973. And he leads a church of thousands. And I'm translating this guy and thinking, what am I doing? Man, 2,500 more in a year? You must be kidding me? Of course, Jakarta has 10 million inhabitants, 30 millions in the agglomeration. If you count in Zurich, it's 400,000 population. Probably they counted the fish in the lake. <laughs> or some cows somewhere. So it's 1.3 million in the agglomeration. It's just a different thing. I mean, if you have been to Asia before, and you, some of you are coming from Asia, there's so many people there, everywhere. I live in a, in a village, there's more cows than people. If I open a church, I, I better start with the cows. I feel two services. But it's so important, you know, 
He has his calling. I have mine. He has his assignment. He has his context. I have mine. And it's so important also for you, you need to know your assignment. And don't compare yourself with others because it's another story. We can't compare apple with pear, pears. It's just a different kind of thing. I think the only way that is acceptable to compare in a biblical way is to compare you with yourself. I want to read you this verse in Galatians 6. I think this is powerful. Because if you want to compare, then there's just one thing you need to compare. It's yourself. What does it say there? If anyone thinks they are something, when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own action. You test your own action. Then they can take pride in themselves. Not because you have compared with others, but because you have looked at your life and you thought about, am I effective with what God has put in my hand? That's the only question that you can ask yourself every day. They can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one should carry their own load. So when, when it comes to comparison, we need to know where we're coming from. We need to know who we are. We need to know our assignment and examine our life and think about how we are putting in action what God put in our hand. That's the only way to compare. If we try to compare with others, we'll always be disappointed and we'll be in this spiral of envy and jealousy and it's really ugly. And I think God doesn't want us to be stuck there. And the fourth thing, and it's the last thing in, in today's message, what John the Baptist says in his answer, he says the following, is the bridegroom who marries the bride and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad, it is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. I think that John the Baptist knows how to rejoice with others. And I think this is a very powerful thing. You know, if you go through points one to three regularly, then you can live point four. Then you can rejoice about the joys of others, even though you're just standing next to it. You're seeing it on Instagram, but you're happy because you know who you are. You know where you're coming from. You know what your job is on this planet Earth and you can rejoice with others. And I think this is a powerful context here because, you know, in Jewish marriage, the friend of the bridegroom and the friend of the bride are very important people. I mean, it's the same in our context that when you get married, you have a friend that is standing beside as a, as a witness. But in a, in a Jewish marriage, it goes even further. Did you know that the Jewish marriage um, has is its completion on the night of the marriage? That means when the bride and the bridegroom sleep together for the first time with the first sex, the marriage is declared 
closed. So that's why when people ask me, where in the Bible does it say that sex is only for marriage? You know, when you read the Bible and you look at this covenant theology, of course it's very normal that sex is consuming marriage. So when people had sex for the first time, the marriage was closed. Why? Because a covenant comes always with blood. And I don't want to go too much details here. There's some, I see some kids there. They're very small. I think, doesn't understand. So of course, the first sex with a virgin, there's blood flowing. And in the whole Bible, covenants are consumed through the flowing of blood. Now, did you know that the friend of the bridegroom was sleeping in the same house than the couple in the night of the wedding. So he was the first who would hear when the virginity was not there. You know what I mean? So I just imagine the guys upstairs and he down there, Heavenu shalom, halechem, heavenu shalom. You know, very loud probably, because it's a, it's a, bit, a little bit embarrassing. But he was standing beside and he was happy because it was his friend and I think this is a powerful picture because I don't know about the friend of the bridegroom maybe he was a single for 20 years and was hoping to have a wife and maybe the guy that he married the, the girl that he married he maybe had a crush on her you know like a couple of years ago and now he was there holding the candle <laughs> and waiting in happiness you know, I think this is a powerful thing. If we can be happy about the joy of others, we can always be happy in life. And I think this is such a key. You know, it's such a key um, to be able to rejoice about the joy of others. And I want to finish this message. The band can come. Where are they? Disappeared with the Backstreet Boys. Then in the back. Backstage with the Backstreet Boys. The band is coming up and, you know, for me this is a, I just want to close with a, with a very personal um, story. You know, for me, for me it's, a, it's, a, it's a special thing to, to be here on stage, to preach. I mean, most of you, you know me from, from preaching on stage, but you have to know that um, my life was, music was always something that was very strong in my life. I brought some pictures as a, as a, as a, as a, as a child, you know, I was very, uh, yeah, um, played different instruments, uh, ate some flutes, um, played the piano with my sister, um, and then got to know my wife through um, music. Um, was a worship leader for many, many, many years. I was a songwriter, playing the band. We always, we, we, we yeah, uh, here with Luca. And, you know, I remember like when I grew up and you, I always t told God, you know, if you want to use me, it will, it will be through music. I couldn't imagine something else because that really was such a part of my life. And I remember about 10 years ago, God really spoke to me and, and said to me, hey, music is defining who you are. I mean, you define yourself through what you're doing. I mean, I gave you a gift of music, yes, but it's not who you are. You're much more than that. 
I want to show you some other things. And so he really took music away from me. I had to lay it down. And during that time, God showed me a gift of teaching and preaching. And, and I really uh, I had to learn who I really was in God, you know, that I'm not what I'm playing. I'm not who I am on a stage. I'm just a son of God. You know, I'm, 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 I'm a man of God who, who is loved by God, who is gifted by God. And it's much more than what I thought was just my little world, music, worship. And I thought one day I want to be a rock star. And you know, God has humor because now today here in church, I look after ICF worship. That means I look after the publishing of our songs. I look after the, the productions. So what I'm really doing is that I take the things that they are doing, writing songs, you know, and a couple of years ago, I would never do this because I thought this is my place. I'm the songwriter, I'm the guy on the piano. Why would I promote something that is not coming from me? And for many years I had problems worshiping because I always glanced to the piano play and thought, man, I could play this chord a little bit better. And now today I can truly say before all of you, I, I am so glad to be the one helping bringing this world, these songs out into the world. And I'm so happy with everything that they're doing because I really learned who I was. I learned where I'm coming from, where my gifts are coming from, and I discovered what my assignment was. And so that's why I, I could grow into my assignment because I let go of what defined me. This was not healthy. And I really, sometimes God needs to take us through some school to learn these things. And so that's why at the end of his answer, John the Baptist says in John 3.30, He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. And it's important that we take that into the right context. It doesn't say that I'm nothing. I'm just a nothing. I'm a worm. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just nothing at all. No, the context is, He is Jesus. I am not. But it doesn't mean that I'm not important in God's eyes. And so today I want to finish this message just by giving you some time to think about what I just said. Because, you know, I think this is a, a message that goes quite deep because identity is really something that we're confronted with every day. And I really pray that tonight there can be an exchange happening at the cross. We have the cross set up there. There's a prayer team that is waiting for you in the next couple of minutes. And I think that God really wants to touch your heart so that you can, like a cloak, have this new identity of God on your life. Maybe there's things that you need to bring to the cross. Maybe there's envy, there's jealousy in your life and there's names attached to it. Then I want to encourage you to confess it, to bring it to the cross, to let it go and exchange it with God's words over your life. Let us take a couple of minutes. The band is worshiping. You can stay where you are. You can move around, go to the cross, 
go to the prayer team. They're ready to wait. They wait for you. Maybe there's things you need to confess or there's just things you need to receive and make this exchange at the cross. I believe that God wants to give out gifts and wants to give you a fresh identity, a fresh vision for who you are in Christ. In the name of Jesus. Let us think together and just listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying. trust your sovereignty when there is no clarity because I can't sit forever in my disappointment and pain. I'm going to stand and I'm going to sing again, sing again, sing again. Fear loves to limit you. Fear loves to keep you where you are. Fear wants you to do what you have always done and never do anything else. Fear wants to shackle your potential and fear always wants to limit you. But every everlasting change starts with the Word of God. The Word of God has a power in it like nothing else. Jesus, I'm afraid. Jesus, let's do it. And there are moments when you are in a ladder, when you are facing an area where you're super afraid. Pray, grab, hold, face. And please, don't give up.